Brought to you by Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake. Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob to create a facility that treats alcoholism and drug addiction with compassion rather than control. They have decades and decades of experience treating addiction and co-occurring mental health disorders, including the dreaded SMI. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, fucking yoga, surfing, the incredibly spiritual sweat lodge. And they make sure that if you're kicking anything, when you're kicking it in the detox, you are as comfortable as possible. If you are willing to go to sunny Southern California, I cannot suggest going to Aloe enough. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you guys by Soberlink. I'm sure you guys remember Soberlink from when Chris used to use it. It would ping his phone, reminding him that it's time to go and submit an alcohol breath test. And that's how Soberlink works. It's a portable system with reliable results and facial recognition so the people who care about your recovery can rest assured that you are staying sober. Now, this may seem like a nuisance or controlling, but the ability to stay connected to loved ones who truly care about your sobriety is priceless. Soberlink empowers you to be accountable because, one, you're going to be deterred from drinking if you know you have to test soon, and, two, you don't have to deal with people not trusting your word when you say that you're sober. Soberlink is your proof. Addiction is not a moral failing, and Soberlink understands that. Lasting recovery comes from consistent accountability. And if you're ready to take that step, email info at soberlink.com and mention Dopey for 50 bucks off your device. Lasting recovery comes from consistent accountability. And if you're ready to take that step, email info at soberlink.com and mention Dopey for 50 bucks off your device. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Clean Cause. 
Clean Cause is our favorite sparkling yerba mate beverage. Linda loves it. It tastes absolutely amazing and has 160 milligrams of organic caffeine to help us do all the work needed to produce Dopey. But the best thing by far is that 50% of their profits empower individuals recovering from alcohol and drug addiction. Those profits fund sober living scholarships, and to date, they've granted 2,000 scholarships representing $1 million. But they aren't stopping there. So drink a better caffeine and go to cleancause.com. Use the dopey code dopey15 for 15% off your next purchase. It's delicious. Cleancause.com. Check it out. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Daddy's Vapor. Did you not get a stimulus check, but you wanted one? Or did you get a stimulus check and want another one? Enter the Daddy's Vapor $1,400 Vape Stimulus Sweepstakes. Visit giveaway.daddysvapor.com to enter for sweepstakes rules and details. Daddy's Vapor distributes premium e-liquids, like twist e-liquids, which is known for its mouth-watering flavors, such as its best-selling lemonade, sweet treats, and dessert flavors. All flavors are available with or without nicotine for those who are looking to make the switch from combustible cigarettes to vapes. Learn more about e-liquids and enter for a chance to win 1400 bucks at giveaway.daddysvapor.com. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Evolution Accounting and Consulting. They are a full-service accounting firm that can help you with your taxes, bookkeeping, payroll, and almost any other business need you have. Thanks to technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. When you allow them to take this off your plate, you'll be freed up to focus on what you love to do. And perhaps more important than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. Fortunately, he's been in recovery for a few years now, and he knows the struggle as well as the success. Use promo code Dopey when you connect with use promo code Dopey when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. It is tax season. Call them up today. Write them at www.evolution-accounting.com. And lastly, this episode is brought to you guys by you guys in the Dopey Nation through Dopey Patreon, which is www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Patreon is an amazing service that allows us to give you guys more content and allows you guys to kick down some money. Making Dopey is like my favorite thing to do. If you guys get anything from it, kick a few bucks into the Patreon account and benefit from the bonus interviews. Last week, I put up an inter- uh, a video from Katz's. There's videos with my dad, with Ray. There's music. And there's going to be only more bonus shit to come on Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Uh, it really helps me make the show. It, it helps bring you more dopey, so check it out. Also, if you want gear, you go to dopeypodcast.com. We're partnered up with a company called SRO Prints, who basically are a bunch of junkies like me and like a lot of you guys, and they make our gear. We have new gear up there. Go to 
dopeypodcast.com. I have a shitload of hats. I've got dopey snapbacks, red and blue snapbacks, one or two blue and orange, knickerbocker dopey snapbacks, and of course, oy vase snapbacks and a shitload of stickers. So if you want any of that stuff, just Venmo me. Enough with the fucking ads. Here is the fucking show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and I hope you guys are well. I'm alone in my attic, looking out on my sprawling backyard, and it is springtime, and the grass is back, and little patches of onion grass and crab grass are kind of sticking out, and like there's dead growth from last year that I'm not sure if I have to remove in order to get new growth or not. So I have to, I have to start watching gardening videos, which I'm very excited to do. I'm excited for a very robust gardening season this year. I'm going to grow lots of stuff, lots of flowers and vegetables, and it's going to be beautiful. And you guys will see a lot of stuff. I hope you guys are well in your springtime world. And I have a little story to tell you. Linda has a new hobby. It is uh, painting rocks. When we're doing anything and she has a minute to not be with the kids, she starts painting these stones. She's been doing it for months and compulsively. And she, she named them stoop stones. And basically she takes a polished rock and she paints a design or a flower and then she sprays it with enamel and she gives them to her friends or she puts them in our little garden, or she puts them on the porch. And there's this store in our town, and I'm sure you guys remember years ago, Linda had entered some of her Sharpie artwork into the art store years ago that sells like artwork from local artists and crafts from local artists. They actually sold my seagull photographs as well, but now they're ready to sell Linda's stoop stones. So she asked me to... uh, Because she's too embarrassed to go down and and sell her shit. So she asked me to go down there uh, with her stuff. And uh, you can't park in front of the store. There's no parking on that street. And the stoop stone, she has two gigantic Tupperware things full of the, the stones. So I park behind the thing, the store, and I'm carrying out these two gigantic... Tupperware things full of stones, which are very heavy. And I was like, you don't need to bring the stones. We just need to introduce ourselves, show them the pictures, and they could tell us what they want. She's like, no, you have to bring the stones. I'm like, all right, all right, I'll bring the stones. So I get to the door, and I'm trying to hold the Tupperware as I open the front door of the store, and I drop the fucking Tupperwares. And one of them opens up, and the stones hit the, the, the sidewalk. And, uh, and they get a little bit scuffed. And I go inside, and I'm wearing a mask, and I put the stoop stones on top of the counter where the sales lady is. And, and she loved the stones. She thought they were super cool. She said the way they sell art is you make a tag with the artist's picture and a description of the artist, and then the, the customer is buying the artist, right? So when I got home, Linda was super pissed, 
that I dropped her rocks, you know, not totally ungrateful that I schlepped her fucking stones all the way down there in the first place. But then she had to have asked me 20 times if the clerk actually liked the stones. And she did. And the clerk is obviously the store owner. If the store owner liked the stones, which she did. And she probably asked me 20 times into today. And then she also said that because I scuffed up the stones, I owe her and I'm going to have to make the tag and write the description, which I knew I was going to have to do anyway. But the truth is, if I was Linda, I would be exactly the same way. And I would make her tell me that the store owner loved her stones and all that. So I'm going to put some stoop stone pictures up uh, for you guys and you could tell me what you think. Maybe we'll ship them out as dopey gear. Maybe she'll do some dopey stones. Who knows? I got, but the, the point is, like, our family is super happy right now, which is amazing, and I think it's mostly because uh, I'm doing what I'm told, you know, by her and my sponsor and whatever. I think it is working out. I got this email that's kind of about family, and I wanted to read it because, like, I just think it fits with this story, although it's not as joyful a story as mine. Hold on. Here we go. And it's from a, a hardcore Dopey Nation fan. And he writes, to dope, and he wants to stay anonymous. And he writes, to Dopey Kids, I'm writing this letter to you to tell you something about me and why Dopey is important to me. A long time ago, I made some choices. I did some things that made nobody happy, and sometimes I feel really bad about those choices. I have two children, and we are not that close. The mothers don't talk to me, and it's best that we don't. I don't know how to fix it, and I've been told not to try. Sometimes the person becomes a monster when they are an addict. Once this happens, it can be very scary. I listen to Dopey for so many reasons. One of them is that your dad, uh, Dave... So this is a letter really to my kids. One of them is that Dave talks about you. Hearing him share about how he was willing to do anything to have you in his life, and the rest of the family comes on the show and talks about life. It's nice to just hear and pretend to belong for just a few minutes. My family does not do this. We barely talk. I knew my family was not normal when I would visit other people's houses. Being a child is not easy. Being a child of an addict is harder. I remember being embarrassed many times. I have more bad memories. So listening to Dopey is wonderful for me. I get to hope for you and your family. I celebrate when I hear other people that get to be with their families. I work with their people. I work with other people, and it brings me joy when they get the family back together. I know that listening long enough to Dopey, I eventually hear my story from the Dopey Nation or guest on the show. I'm going to end this letter now by saying thank you for sharing your dad and family with me. Thank you, anonymous addict. And uh, and that email I find to be incredibly powerful. And you know, it's not all roses in my house, even though things have been going well lately. I get nervous that um, I've been too m- putting too much time into my work and not spending enough time with my kids. And Nora's getting a little bit older, so she's getting more independent. And it requires work. You know, keeping the family going and happy requires tons of work. And, um, you know, I wish you guys all the love and happiness possible with your families. And I personally, not to be like rah, rah, blah, 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 whatever. I believe that with work, like, comes results. So, like, put in the work you can do, spread the love where you can, and I'm getting too schmaltzy. So forgive me for schmaltzing it up. 
But today we have a very special guest. We have this woman. She's a writer. She, I don't know if she identifies as an alcoholic. I think she would identify herself as having a problem with alcohol. She wrote a very, very famous book called This Naked Mind. Her name is Annie Grace. There's a woman named Kira who uh, got sober through the use of This Naked Mind and Dopey. And, uh, and Nat, who, who does a podcast called Recovery in the Middle Ages, can't say enough about this book. So I had this woman on so she could tell her experience around alcohol and share her philosophy, which is written in this book called This Naked Mind. So check her out. Here she is, Annie Grace. Now, before we go to Annie Grace, I want to know what interferes with your happiness. What is standing in the way of you achieving your goals? I know my anxiety makes me crazy. And when I talk about my anxiety, I feel better. When I worry too much and I talk about it with someone, I feel better. BetterHelp is an amazing place where you can talk about your problems with a professional therapist. You connect in a safe and private online environment. It is super convenient, and you can start communicating with a professional in under 24 hours. They deal with any issue you can imagine. Depression, anxiety, stress, relationships, addiction, LGBT matters, self-esteem, whatever. It is convenient, professional, and affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com slash Dopey Podcast. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, better H-E-L-P, dot com slash Dopey Podcast. Get BetterHelp. Let them help you get the better help you need right now at BetterHelp. Use the dopey code, save a little money, and feel better with your shit. Now, without further ado, here is Annie Grace. Um, uh, I mean, I want to say you're kind of a self-help guru. Can I say that? <laughs> so You can say it. I'm not going to believe it about myself. <laughs> she is a renowned self-help guru of sorts. Her name is Annie Grace. She wrote a very, very amazing book called This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life. Welcome to the show, among other books, but welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. So good to be here. Right on. Um, now, before we get into all this exciting stuff, I want to know, and everyone in the audience knows that Dopey was supposed to be about drugs, blah, blah, blah. Um, do you feel comfortable coming on a drug addict show with your controlling alcohol message? We'll start with that. Yes, I feel comfortable. Absolutely. That's good. Um, when when you, you wrote This Naked Mind, why did you, uh, was This Naked Mind your first book? Yes. Tell us the story behind your own... I mean, you don't like to use the word alcoholism, but obviously you had an issue around alcohol. So tell us the story of the origin of This Naked Mind. Awesome. So I did not drink a ton in college. I wasn't a big drinker. I was kind of take it or leave it. It was very much on the periphery. And I got married and moved to New York City with my husband. And we uh, were, you know, just didn't drink a lot. And I remember the first time um, I actually went out for drinks in New York City. I remember getting the bill for a drink. It was my first night. And they're like, come on, let's go out for drinks. And it was a $25 Cosmopolitan. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Not doing that anymore. That's crazy. You know, we're on this shoestring just out of college budget. 
Where did you and move so, to? Where did you move to in Manhattan? Um, so we were living in Brooklyn in Fort Greene okay. and working. Um, I was working downtown on Wall Street, uh, right off Wall Street. And um, my husband was working in Midtown. So, nice. You know, we're commuting into the city. And one of the one of my bosses at the time said, Hey, Annie, why aren't you ever coming to the happy hours? And I was like, Oh, I don't really drink. And he's like, Oh, it's not about that. It's, it's about, you know, this is where the deals are done. It's kind of like happy hours, like the golf course for, <laughs> for our careers. This is where all the big wigs are coming in from out of town. We're all too busy during the day. And so I was like, okay. So I actually started going to happy hour and I, you know, was really serious about as like very, um, type A, you know, very successful in school, very successful in work, very serious about this sort of thing. So I actually really had a method to my madness, which was to drink a glass of wine. And I was choosing wine because it was lowest calorie and supposedly healthiest for me. And to drink, I'd alternate glasses of wine, pints of water. And then if I ever felt myself getting too tipsy, I would go in the bathroom and I would throw up the last glass of wine just so I could keep drinking wine to keep, uh, keep up with all of these people in this corporate environment. What was really the what was the business? What was yeah. the business you were in? Um, financial services marketing. I can't help but see right away this incredible parallel between you and the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson. You're like telling Bill Wilson's story from like a a, a, a 21st century female perspective. I'm loving this. Do you ever see the parallel oh my God, there? That gives me chills. Wow. Have, have you ever seen the parallel? I haven't seen the parallel. I mean, I was so appreciative of his work. He's one of the first people that I recognize in the premise, in the um, beginning of this naked mind, because what what he did was just revolutionary. And what would we have had? Where would we have been without his work? So, but I've never actually seen that parallel. No, you got fascinating. Did you, did you ever read Bill's story in the front of the Alcoholics Anonymous book? I, I have not read his story, no. dude. You should read it. It's gonna. It it will. It'll be really eye-opening for you because it's a very similar story as your story um right, but it, i can't note yeah write it down i read most of the book but i did not read the um the story so that's great it'll crack you up but anyway continue so you're 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 struggling okay. to keep up so yeah so i'm i'm you know doing all these things to not be you know that person and trying to maintain my career and all sorts of stuff and here's the thing is I had lots of coping mechanisms at that point in my life. You know, I'd get home from work and I'd go for a run or, you know, meet up with people. And so I had all of these, all of these things to be human. And I think we all need all of these things to be human and maintain our sanity in this crazy world we live in. And, you know, slowly I would get home and I'd look at my running shoes and I'd look at the wine and I'd be like, huh, that's easier. And so one by one, all of the different things that I had been using to like live life got replaced by alcohol. And over the next decade, my drinking, you know, got progressively worse to where I was living in London part time, commuting back and forth between the U.S. and and London. I had done what I'd set out to. I'd gotten, you know, massively promoted and I was global head of marketing by this time flying all around the world in charge of 28 countries. And I was also drinking two bottles of wine every single night. Uh, literally stopped buying bottles to start buying boxes because I was so, you know, that that cognitive dissonance when the first bottle is gone and you realize you're the only one drinking and you're like, oh my gosh. So I'd start buying boxes and, you know, really got to a place where I, I no longer felt, I, I felt smart and in control in every area of my life, but with alcohol. And I started creating all these rules for myself, rules like, okay, I'm not going to have anything to drink until 
until Thursday. And then, you know, I'd break it and I'd be like, okay, Wednesday. And then I break it. Okay. Tuesday. And then I'm going to just take one day off a week and I break it. And I, I, I got to a point where I was really starting to lose trust in myself. I had been trying for years to drink less or to stop drinking and it just hadn't, hadn't been working at all. When did, when did like, cause I can relate to this. I was never, it's like, I'm a drug addict. I, I can relate to alcoholics very easily. Like I'm around alcoholics all the time. Um, when I started doing heroin, I was exactly the same way. I would use on a Friday night and then I would use on a Wednesday and a Friday. And then I was like, but I shouldn't use Monday too. And then it was every other day. And like, you know, and obviously with heroin, you know, you're going to be a slave. You know what I mean? You know, you're going to be full on addicted and you don't have a chance. Um, when did the alcohol like rear its head in a way that you were like, oh shit, like maybe this is more than I had contended with. Like when did you start getting that feeling? So there was a, you know, there's always a lot of little moments. I mean, some of the moments were small. Like I remember small, but painful. I remember a moment when I was at home and um, on the couch with my glass of wine. And I asked my son who was like four at the time to come sit on my lap. And he told me, no, mommy, you smell bad and your Mm. teeth are purple. Mm. And I just started getting this inkling of like, Oh, this isn't isn't (laughs) who I want to be. But the, the big moment for me, and, and there was lots of moments like that, just just things that were just very clear indicators of like this is not in line with who who I believe myself to be in this in this life and in this world. And um and one of these moments was I had been in London without my family this time. I was there by myself for a week, booziest week that you can imagine was up the night before I had to fly home, was up till four in the morning with colleagues drinking in some hotel room. Woke up super, super drunk still, hungover also, feeling horrible, that combination of you're drunk and you're hungover all at once. Uh, Went down to the hotel sort of restaurant to try to get something to sop up the alcohol in my stomach before I flew home and um, wanted food but also wanted a drink. And so I asked him for a mimosa, which in my mind was totally kosher at at 6 a.m. And they said, you know, unless you're going to drink the whole bottle of champagne, I'm not going to open a bottle for you because – you know, it's going to go flat before any other guests are here. And I'm like, oh, no, I'd never drink a whole bottle of champagne. Ha, ha, ha. Which of course, I knew I would have. And so I said, OK, that's fine. And she's like, but I can give you a, a screwdriver, which is a vodka and orange juice. And that was one of my little lines. That was one of the little places where I was like, OK, if I don't drink hard alcohol first thing in the morning, I'm still OK. You know, we all have those little rules that trying to gauge where we are on the spectrum. And that was one of mine. And so, but I was so miserable and I was like, you know what, that sounds good. And so I had like two or three screwdrivers before getting into the cab to the airport. And I remember getting to the airport and it dropped me off and I just took an elevator down into like this train tunnel just to be alone a bunch of time before my flight. And I was sitting there in this train tunnel, just hysterical. I mean, I was crying and I was journaling and I was just hysterical. And I was like, this is like, something's wrong. Something is very, very wrong. And, um, and I did something that I think is really radical, uh, but I did not have any idea it was radical at the time. And I just had this voice in my head that said, Hey, like what you're trying to do isn't working. So I want you to try something else. And instead of asking what's wrong with you, Annie, I want you to ask what's wrong with it, alcohol. Like, I want you to ask a different question. And in order to do that, like basically the sort of mandate I feel like I got was to stop trying to stop drinking because me trying to stop drinking and creating all of these rules for myself 
and all of this day ones over and over and all of this self-loathing and all of this lack of trust and all of this beating myself up and shame and blame and it just complete lack of self-compassion. There was no noise for me to learn. Nothing else could come in. I was just surviving. And by the way, I was losing and eroding my very sense of self-worth every single moment because I was trying the same thing over and over and over for years, which was trying to, you know, cut back or stop and not being successful. And so it was like, okay, do two things. Stop trying to stop. Let yourself off the hook totally and completely, 100%. And learn why you fell into this trap in the first place. And that's what I want. Give it a year, any year. Like that's, and, and I have it in my journal. I have it written down like, okay, all right, I'm going to do that. And so what I did is I made a list of every single reason I drank and I started going through them methodically without, by the way, that pressure of like that shame and blame. I was just like, okay, I'm just going to drink and see, you know, and I, I started going through the list um, and I started asking other people why they drink. And I had this huge long list. I mean, everything, all the things, right. It relaxes me. It helps me have fun. It helps me loosen up in the bedroom. It makes me more social, makes me better at my job. It makes me more present as a mom, like on and on. And I just started going through and researching, does alcohol really do this in the brain and the body? And I'd also look in my own experience, like, is this really true in my life? Am I more or less stressed now in my life? And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm certainly more stressed out. And then I'd find like these neurochemical reasons that that was true, like the relationship between um, the brain and dopamine and this chemical called dynorphin that actually like steals your joy as a result of drinking and just started learning all of this stuff. And I think it was 12 or 13 months later, I remember walking out of my office and telling my husband, I was like, if you want to get drunk with me again, tonight's the night, because after this, I think I'm done drinking. And he, I mean, he looked at me like I was a crazy person. You have to understand that I had never walked into an AA meeting and no scaffolding for a recovery that there was even really a community. Um, I actually had a friend who did go to AA and my, my one interaction with AA was really, she told me, you know, I'm getting sober. And I was like, oh my gosh, what does that mean about my drinking? I drink as much as you do. And she goes, no, no, Annie, I drink alcoholically. I was born this way. You don't drink like an alcoholic. And so in my mind, that was about six years before I actually stopped drinking. I was like, okay, well, I guess that's not for me. And, um, and so I didn't even feel like it was, it was an option. Uh, so, and I don't think I, I, I consciously said, well, AA is not an option. It was more like it just, it just didn't even enter into the equation for me. You said, um, you said so many things there that I find to be just fascinating. Um, the first thing that I think is just so interesting, like, and it didn't even occur to me while I was reading the book. You know what I mean? I read your book and I read a bunch of the people that you kind of acknowledge in the beginning of the book. I've read Alan Carr. I've read John Sarno. I, I, and I get the, 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 the mind-body connection, what you're talking about, and I, and I love that stuff. But the thing that didn't occur to me, like when I, I was, you know, I, like I said, I was a drug addict. I am a drug addict in recovery, whatever. Um, everyone would say, well, why are you a drug addict? Meaning like looking for that moment in my life when the spider bit Peter Parker and he became Spider-Man. Like what was that moment for me? Not looking at, well, I like getting high. Well, I wanted to be out of society. I wanted to be defiant. So when you're actually, that's probably the way your mind works that you may, you, you fucking, you, you looked at alcohol 
and you deciphered what you liked about it and what it did to you that you liked and what it did to you that you didn't like and did you and how did you consciously decide not to put the onus on yourself i think that's the most radical thing about this whole thing you you took the the focus off of you and you put it on the alcohol i think that's fascinating how did that happen I, I I have to describe it as some sort of like either inner wisdom or divine intervention or something. like it was literally this moment of um, you've been asking the wrong question. The question I had been asking is, am I an alcoholic? Do I have a problem? What's wrong with me? Was was the, the question that I would wake up at three in the morning and be like, what's wrong with you? Can't you see how bad this is? What's wrong with you? Why can't you stop? What's wrong with you? And in that moment in the train, um, I just I, I I just knew that I was asking the wrong question and, and it wasn't about what was wrong with me. It was about why did this happen? How does this happen to human beings? Because actually I, I just was like, I think, and I say this all the time. I think I, I really was doing the best I could with the tools I had. And guess what? I was given the tool of alcohol to deal with my career, to be a networker, to be social. And then when I started having children, I was given the tool of alcohol to be a better mom. Um, when I got married, I was given the tool of alcohol to loosen up in the bedroom over and over. I was given this tool by probably well-meaning society. And it was just not, you know, not questioned. And so I started to question it. And did you ever, did you ever reverse it? Cause I mean like a lot of 12 step stuff, I mean, it's very little about alcohol. You know what I mean? It's very little about the substance and it's all about the addict or the alcoholic. And, um, so like, and you don't believe in the term alcoholism or what's your relationship with the term alcoholic and alcoholism? I don't want to put any words in your mouth at all. Yeah, for sure. So it's not really that I don't believe in it as much as I don't find it helpful from a big societal perspective. I see that it's helpful in an individual perspective when someone, you know, finally reaches a place where they've hit, hit a moment in their life where they say, if I don't take on the identity of alcoholic, which will tell me that I cannot drink again in safety, I will die. And, and if that's, if that becomes true, then, then it's a life-saving term, obviously. But from a greater societal perspective, it creates this dichotomy that says there's a certain percentage of the population that are alcoholics. They were born that way. There's something wrong with them. I mean, according to Dr. Selkworth, it was an allergy. And and therefore, all the rest of us, we can just drink because we're, quote, normals. We're normies. We can just drink fine. And, you know, I was... I would say, and I actually, some of the criticism my work gets is, oh, well, you weren't a real alcoholic. And so I think like, I'm like, yeah, and that's the point. Like, I I guess if I'm not a real alcoholic, there's millions and millions of people like me who are destroying their lives with alcohol who might not fall into that quote, real alcoholic category. And so where's the voice in the wilderness for them, right? Because I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe I wasn't a quote, real alcoholic, but by the way, where am I going to find that out? There's no scientific quiz or study I can take to figure out if I was a real alcoholic or not. And I, I can be there. And so by, by saying that I wasn't, I was keeping myself from even questioning my relationship with alcohol. And the term alcoholic, by the way, told me that, no, there it's the human, the human being is the problem. If you are an alcoholic, you're the problem. If you're not, then you should be able to drink normally. And, and that was not my experience. Right. Well, that's, that's interesting in itself, the spectrum you're talking about, you know, and that's, I mean, it's like in, in the big book, I, and I'm not the greatest big book scholar, 
But in the big book, it kind of describes an alcoholic. It describes a heavy drinker. It says, if you're not an alcoholic, see if you can drink moderately, yada, yada, yada. Um, and I, I love that you have an alternative. Like, and I think that like, there are so many people who struggle. I mean, I got sober through 12-step because I needed a model uh, to have a better life. I needed, I needed the spiritual... Um, kind of enhancement of my life and I needed it to be kind of a starting point which was my life is unmanageable and I'm all fucked up I need to have a life that's better so I I and I you know I had lost my family I I had been on heroin for a dozen years like I was I was out in the wilderness you know I needed somebody to hold my hand and show me how to do it um but the spectrum is very important because not everybody is out there like that. You know what I mean? Like, and I think a lot of people are resistant because they're not total rock bottom alcoholics or drug addicts. And to provide another take is very valuable. There's a ton of listeners to Dopey who have been talking to me about you uh, forever, like this woman who helps me make the, who helps me with the show a lot. Her name is Kira, and uh, she says I wouldn't have gotten sober if not for this naked mind and dopey. So that means we're in good company here. So you should say hi to Kira. She loves you. That's so cool, and I think that you know <clears throat> that what you're talking about is the barrier to entry into the conversation, into questioning it. And, you know, in my experience, I was willing to question it six years before. I think I was questioning it and I was willing to question it like in conversation. And I basically was told like, oh, my drinking isn't bad enough. And so it almost predicates this rock bottom when we think if if the barrier to entry into a conversation is accepting that you're an alcoholic. And while that might be very true for people, they need to accept that in some circumstances. Most people that I have spoken to who have you know, wanted to, or been very happy that they stopped drinking, they didn't need to accept that term. And actually that term was the thing like it. it, it, So, so if the brain is saying, am I an alcoholic? Am I not an alcoholic? Right. And that's the question. Your brain is going to do everything possible to say, no, I'm not. And if no, I'm not is the conclusion, then the solution is, okay, well then I should be able to drink normally. I should be able to drink in moderation. So I'm going to continue to try that as long as humanly possible. Right. But if we can say, okay, you don't have to say you're an alcoholic to have, have this conversation, then the brain is not forced to like self-identify. And so the, the barrier to entry into the entire conversation can back way up to anybody who's just saying, Hey, I wonder if I'd feel better if I drank a bit less. And so we start to have a much wider, broader conversation without the term. Well, a lot of the book is also just unpacking the evils of alcohol or the the unhealth of alcohol and how alcohol really ruins your life. And then the other thing that I love about the book is is it demystifies the way corporations play on the the vulnerability of a human and how susceptible we are to evil bullshit. You know, like that's I mean, like it's the lie. I mean, and I I tried so hard to stop smoking for years. I read. Alan Carr's book and I and I love that aspect of Alan Carr's book but it didn't it didn't do it for me and then it took a combination of the lie you know meaning are our cigarettes going to give me peace am I are those five minutes my time it's like you know it's like weird shit that it creates within us and it and it took me like a combination of 12 step Alan Carr 
finally being ready. You know what I mean? Um, how how did Alan Carr affect you in your writing, and how like what what percentage of this Naked Mind is related to his style, and where do you think it changes? So I was having, you know, doing all this research and having all this conversation. And I actually um, had a colleague at the time. His name is Owen. And he had just stopped drinking with Alan Carr. And I had, I had stopped drinking, too. Uh, and, and we were just kind of geeking out on it. And he's like, everything you're saying reminds me of Alan Carr. You need to read this book. And so he actually gave me the cigarette book. So I didn't read the alcohol book at first. And so, but I read the cigarette book. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so similar. And then I found out he had an alcohol book and I read the alcohol book. And so like his picture play analogy, I think is, is genius. I, I use it in this naked mind to credit him, of course. What is a and picture so plan? That, what is a picture amazing. plan? And I think what my theory at the time was that basically I had these really deep, the theory is in short, is that we have these layers of beliefs and these beliefs, we, we wouldn't do anything as human beings if we didn't think it provided a benefit, right? Like ju- just logically, we wouldn't. And so either like physically, we think it provides a benefit because we're physically addicted. But most people, when it comes to alcohol, and I know this isn't true when it comes to heroin, but when it comes to alcohol, according to the CDC, 90% of excessive drinkers are not really physically dependent, meaning they can stop on a dime and not have more than 72 hours of any sort of side effects, and those are really mild. And so there's a physical desire because, hey, this provides a physical, you know, scratches an itch, or there's this much, much bigger mental desire, especially when it comes to alcohol. And so I said, you know, there's really three categories of beliefs. There's beliefs about the substance, which is, you know, it it relaxes me, it tastes good, uh, it makes things more fun. There's beliefs about our society, which sound like I'm not going to fit in if I'm not drinking. You know, I'm not going to be part of this group. I might not even, you know, be able to get along with my spouse because our whole marriage is is founded. So it's this relational. This is, you know, alcohol is the glue keeping these relationships together. And then there's beliefs about ourself. And, you know, for me, those beliefs about self sounded a lot like I'm not going to be able to get through the day and parent my three kids without a glass, you know, without drinking. I'm not strong enough to do this. I'm not sexy enough to have sex without being drunk. And, and so those three levels of belief, I think if you overcome those, um, and I think they're both conscious and subconscious, which is where Dr. John Sarno's work really intersected with my journey is when I read his stuff. And I was like, I think this is what's happening with me is I have these deeply held beliefs about alcohol. Like I believe alcohol relaxes me. Like I believe the sky is blue. So if I'm stressed out and I'm trying not to drink, it is, it is like a horrific experience because I think that there's this solution and I'm not allowing myself to have it. It's like being on this chronic alcohol diet, except that I'm, I'm starving myself. You know, it was, it was really bad. So even if I wasn't drinking or even if I could take a break, I was literally miserable about it and felt so bad for myself. And so, uh, when I started to say, okay, well, what would, what would it need to change those beliefs? I realized that they're not all conscious. Some of them were just how I saw the world. And so when I started to like combine really Dr. Sarno's work and then what I think Alan Carr does so brilliantly is he uses analogies like that picture plane analogy that just make things so digestible to the brain. Like, so, you know, here's the science, which is not in Alan Carr's work. He didn't do any of the, you know, there's no scientific research in it, but but I had the scientific research and then he used the analogies. And then Dr. Sarno brought in this idea of the conscious and the subconscious mind. And for me, that was like the trifecta it was like, Oh, there we go. Okay. The science, 
the conscious, the subconscious, and and this really beautiful storytelling and analogy based work that Doctor, I mean not Doctor, that Alan Carr was doing. Right. Um, it, it just all came together. And 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 also plus your ability to communicate, your ability to like, you know, you had this marketing ability, and it kind of like organized all those thoughts in this very digestible way. What is a pitcher plant, though? I loved I loved the the, the story of what is a pitcher plant. So, um, so in Alan Carr's book about alcohol, he talks about the pitcher plant, which is a plant from, from Madagascar. And what he says in his book is, this is a beautiful plant and how this plant attracts its prey. It's a meat-eating plant. And it attracts its prey because it has this like elixir and it's this really sweet-smelling, amazing stuff. And so these, these bugs come into it and it, all, the whole plant has these hair follicles that are sloping downward. And so you're drinking it and you're drinking it and you're drinking it and you're like, this is the best. And I don't know if it makes it, the bugs high. It might like, I, but it, it's like just the best. So these bugs are like, but they know they're slipping downwards and they think, oh, I can just get out. I just need another sip. I just need a few more sips and I can get out. I can fly away. And they don't, they can fly away to a point. And then once they realize that they really want to fly away, they look around them and they realize that the juice is actually made by the digestive juices of the plant digesting all the other insects. And they see there, there's all these dead bodies at the bottom of this pitcher plant. And they realize, oh my gosh, this is, this is me. Like the, I'm drinking, like this is death. Like I'm drinking death. And they try to fly away. And by then it's too late because they've realized they're stuck. And he just likens that to, to our relationship as a society with alcohol is we all think we're fine. We all think we can fly away until the point we can't. And um, and just trying to make us aware sooner that we're in a pitcher plant. Well, it's the same. It's the same exact story as drug addiction, and it's an amazing analogy. And um, I want to hear more about your story, though. You, you when you said to your husband, "This is the last night. Let's get drunk together," and and I'm done. What was the what was day one like? What was day seven like? What was the beginning like? The beginning was amazing. I mean, I was, I guess it was probably, I didn't have any, I, I had no words for this because I didn't know what a pink cloud was till probably two years after I stopped drinking. But I think I was probably very much in it. I mean, I was really, I just felt like, oh my gosh, I, I went from feeling like I'll never get to drink again. Poor me. I'm so sorry for myself. I'm so sad to like, I never have to drink again. I never have to be embarrassed in front of other people. I never have to feel hungover. I never have to do this again. And I just felt this sense of like freedom and relief that was unparalleled and um, amazing and just so much positive emotion. And I, I should tell this part of the story, too, because it's equally, I guess, rebellious now that I see it in, in hindsight. I didn't know it at the time, um, but it's equally kind of rebellious. And it's it's just like a part of the journey. It was probably two months after this. And, and keep in mind, at this point in time, I hadn't told anybody. I wasn't I mean, I told my friends and family, but I, I wasn't trying to like, you know, none of this was I'd say I'm an accidental author. I didn't intend to quit my job and, and do all of this stuff that I'm doing now. And so, um, so I just told my friends and family and we went out, it was actually St. Patrick's day. Um, we were at, at St. Patrick's day for, uh, at someone's house and everybody was drinking and I wasn't drinking and everybody's just like, you know, acting like they're just having so much fun and it's no big deal. And, and so I'm sitting there in my mind and I'm like, am I wrong? Like, I really felt like, am I wrong? Like, is everybody else right? And because I'm being here like this tiny minority saying, you guys are all crazy. Like alcohol doesn't really do anything for you. And everybody else is, and I'm like, am I wrong? And so I said, you know what? I want to know. 
I want to know definitively if alcohol actually makes me feel good or not. And so what I did is, um, and, and I think this might've been a suggestion from Alan Carr about cigarettes. I don't know for sure. I, I'm, I'm kind of blanking on that detail, but anyway, what I did was I took two bottles of wine and I locked myself in the be- my bedroom and I said, all right, no, no external stimulation at all. Like I had this really deep seated belief that alcohol has gotten like caught up and coupled with everything we do for fun. So you go to a sporting event, beer is there and the sporting event might've been fun, but, but if you're not going to drink and you're feeling sorry for yourself that you're not drinking, like I had two kids by this time. So I had two periods of nine months of doing all these social things, but the whole time feeling sorry for myself that I wasn't drinking. And so, of course, I was miserable because I told myself it was going to be miserable. So I wanted to know, okay, I think that social things are really fun, but I think that our belief that it's not fun keeps us from having fun. Back to that whole subconscious belief idea. And so we believe that it's alcohol that's fun. So is it alcohol that's fun? Is alcohol actually enjoyable? Is the experience going to be enjoyable? So I turned on my my camera and I filmed myself for however long it took, two or three hours, to get drunk in front of the camera. And the whole way I just told the camera how I was feeling, I couldn't watch the videos for three, three and a half years, but I woke up the next morning knowing without a shadow of a doubt, no, there's nothing in there. There's nothing in there. When I didn't have the, you know, alcohol like heroin and any other addictive substance creates a withdrawal, it's much more mild. So we don't realize it. We just think it's this low grade discomfort that we have all the time. And then we drink and we scratch that withdrawal and we feel like the drink is so good and profound and amazing. But if you don't have if you don't have that withdrawal and then you drink, it's like scratching where you don't have an itch. It didn't feel good. I mean, I remember the I remember the room getting kind of like blurry around the edges. And I remember feeling dizzy very soon, like within five minutes, I started feeling kind of that dizzy feeling. And then within 20 minutes, I was feeling worse than I was before I started drinking Um, and I actually tell people to time it when they're still drinking. I said, just time how good that first drink, how long that first drink makes you feel good. Right. And they get back to me at 16 to 22 minutes. That's how long it is. And then they never feel good the rest of the night. And, uh, and anyway, those videos for me, I didn't, I didn't need to watch them. Um, but that was it. That was the final nail in the coffin. I was like, there's nothing here for me. And I was done. Do you think, and, and I have a couple questions, so bear with me here. Um, do you think that that was your way of communicating with your subconscious effectively? Like, how do we tap into our subconscious? It seems like that's a really, that's hard. You know what I mean? For me, like, I, it, I, I didn't ever get there. I, I got there when, when circumstances became harder for me to live with than anything else. And I had known, like, the thing in my subconscious was I had known that I could never get higher than I had been. I had known that I was 41 and my life was in shambles. And like, I had known that like there was no good part coming to this story. So like that was me feeding into my subconscious in a way. Um, because I, I, Alan Carr's, Alan Carr's dead, right? He's not still alive, is he? Yeah, no, yeah. he's dead. So he's not going to put out the easy way to stop doing heroin or the easy way to stop smoking meth anytime soon. But if there was an, can, how do we translate uh, this naked mind and this kind of reaching the subconscious to things that aren't, you know, in the media the way alcohol is or cigarettes are? Is there a, what's the transference or what's the potential transference? I I think I would need to really work with somebody who has a story with that sort of addiction. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in that for sure, because I feel like it absolutely 
the mechanisms seem very sound scientifically to me, like the mechanisms of the work, which is really understanding the substance, allowing your subconscious to understand the substance and, and methodically destroying any sense that you, that there's a benefit there and getting really clear about what the benefit is. You know, there's 20 minutes of a euphoric high when you have your first drink and then, and then there's no more benefit, or you can numb yourself to being like totally unconscious. And, you know, and if that's, if you're in that level of pain, then there's arguably a benefit with being able to pass out drunk. Uh, but like, so getting really clear on what that is and then just really allowing the mind to understand, um, you know, the cost benefit analysis in a way that, that reaches all levels of the mind, the conscious and the subconscious. But I think that needs to be done in an environment of self-compassion. And I think if it's not done in an environment of self-compassion, we don't, we have too much cognitive dissonance. We have too much inner war to even hear or learn the information that we would need to learn. I mean, human beings, they learn things through a combination of knowledge, emotion, and action. And you do those three things and the brain actually repatterns itself to to have different neural pathways that are, you know, right now your neural pathways have been repatterned to a point where it's not the default for you to, to pick up, you know, heroin. It's not the default for me anymore to pick up alcohol. But six years ago, it was absolutely the default for me to pick up alcohol. And so it was like action, repeated action actually changes the, the neuro structure of your brain. But that has to happen. Um, I think repeated action only happens when you have the emotional congruence with, yes, this is what I want. And I think you only want it when you see from a knowledge perspective that you have no benefit in it. And so all three of those things have to happen and there has to be enough mental space to absorb that. So like with this naked mind, I'm like, you have to read it sober, but you don't have to stop drinking. And so it's kind of like that. Um, and so I don't know because I, I've not done heroin and I've, I've done, I've, I've done some drugs. I've done like ecstasy and marijuana and, um, uh, I don't remember. I think I did opium once. So I, where did you do I, I opium? Kind of one one how, hit a bunch of drugs in my kind wait, hold of like up, hold early up. days. How did you how did you stumble onto opium? Like where where did they, you were on business in Shanghai or something and you stumbled no, into No, no. What was, happened? This was like at at 19 at some hippie party in Aspen, Colorado or something like on a mountain in some like hippie hot springs. <laughs> and, they, and they were like, I have opium. And did they give you the long pipe? Like, how did oh, you mushrooms? I did mushrooms too. In a very similar situation. Yeah. Well, I've yeah, done, but it I've, was like a one, I, I didn't even feel the opium because I think it's one of those things you have to try multiple times or whatever. At least that's what I was told. But no, I wasn't real. It couldn't have been real. Was, couldn't have been real opium. It was probably the opium incense because opium is a opiate. You know what I mean? It's not something that you, you, you take an opiate, you're going to feel it. I'm sure I've never. Feel it. Okay. So then I got duped. You I got, somehow got duped into smoking something that was not opium and I was told it was. These damn hippies in Colorado, they duped you into smoking the sopium instead of the opium. It's a classic. It was probably crystallized honey. That ah, much like amber. Those bastards. <laughs> um, how, do we, how do we tap into the subconscious? Like what's the easiest way to do that? So the subconscious, um, the, the main thing that you need to do to change your subconscious is you need to make the subconscious beliefs conscious. And in order to do that, you need to get stupidly, crazily curious because anything, any subconscious belief that's running your show is, so I like to think of it this way. You can think of a thought, right? You can hear a thought in your head. You hear the, the sentence, you hear the words. A belief, especially if that belief is subconscious, you don't hear the words, it's just how you see reality, okay? So if it's, um, 
snowing outside and I have a belief that every time it snows, I need to go skiing, then it's snowing outside. I'm just instantly like, okay, it's time to ski. I won't even hear the thoughts in my head, you know, but if I don't have that belief, I'm snowing outside. I'm like, huh, I heard you could ski in the snow. That's interesting. And so our beliefs are kind of like, we do things without thinking them. Just like we walk without having to think about how to walk, we drive to work without having to think about how to drive to work. But in order to change that, we need to understand what those beliefs are. And in order to understand what those beliefs are, especially when they're subconscious, we have to look for clues. And the clues are areas where you know something consciously, but you're doing something else. I think that's one of the biggest clues. So it's a, it's an inconsistency. So I know that I'm going to feel bad if I don't get enough sleep, but I keep staying up all night. I don't know why. There is some subconscious belief that staying up all night is providing you and meeting some of your needs or providing some sort of benefit. And so you just have to get like stupidly curious to be like, what is it? Why do I think, what part of me thinks that staying up all night is a good idea? Right, right. right. In rehab, they call that the self-deception. Like that's the great term in rehab. So it's unpacking the self-deception Really, that, and that's how you change subconscious into conscious, by really being curious about why are you onto this self-deception in the first place. One another thing that really amazes me about you is you don't have a background in psychology, and yet you're riffing like a fucking PhD over here. When did you get, how did you get to this place? Oh, I, I think I... I think curiosity is a key because I am insatiably curious. So I did actually, um, you know, take a few college classes in psychology and was absolutely fascinated, but I was always, I was always very financially motivated, um, because I was not as much anymore, ironically, but because I grew up without, you know, a lot of money. And so I just wanted to get myself out of that. And I very quickly learned that, you know, I was on all self-paid college and self-paid scholarships. And so I knew I couldn't just go and a lot of my friends were just majoring in psychology just because it was fun and cool. And, and I was looking at like the ROI, like, am I going to be able to get a job because I have all these student loans. And so I ended up majoring in business, um, which, which actually why people buy things is very psychological. And so there's a lot of crossover, but to be honest, it really wasn't until I had extreme back pain for years, many you know years before I actually stopped drinking, and I read Dr. Sarno's book about back pain, and that saved my back pain from the mind-body connection. And he talks about Carl Jung, and so I started reading Carl Jung's work and just started to get, you know, again, insatiably curious about why did that work? Why did reading a book heal my back pain? That makes no logical sense to me, and I'm a logical person. And so I started to get really curious, and that's when I started diving into psychology. That's so interesting. And, and when And how did it go from putting down alcohol to I'm going to write a book. I'm going to be a self-help guru. I'm going to be like crazy psychological and not even come from that perspective. Like when did, how did it come to you? Like what was the bolt from the blue to be Annie Grace? Yeah, it was so, so unintentional. Um, So what happened was I had been taking all of, so that those two, the list that I wrote about all the reasons I drank and then all of the, it's, we live in a beautiful, beautiful moment in history where any old person can just go find any scientific study that's been done and pay 50 bucks and download the study. It's amazing. So you can find literally anything. And so I had just these reams and reams of studies and I'd been um, putting them into my own words to really get them to go deep. And so I had like all of this, like really messy journals. And so when I stopped drinking, I'd say within 
three or four months, I was like, I need to, I need people to like, this is good information. And so I figured out how to just put a PDF on a website, a PDF in a Reddit group. And I was like, here, like people have this, this is good information. It wasn't a book. It was just all of, all of the information. Um, and I just started getting 20,000 people downloaded it in two weeks. And I started getting emails from all over the world. Like, Oh my gosh, this helped me too. This is amazing. People were so uh, excited. And so I actually got an email from some guy, I think he was Australian. And he was like, you should, you should make this a book. And I was like, how do I do that? And he's like, yeah, you can self-publish. And so I was like, really? So I was still working my job and I, um, just started researching how to self-publish on Amazon. A friend of mine drew the cover. She drank it and stopped blackout or she'd read the book and stopped blackout drinking. And so she drew the cover for me and uh, I hired like somebody to lay out the design for like 500 bucks on Fiverr. (laughs) Uh, And then I just self-published it. And then once it was actually on Amazon, it really did take off. I mean, it went from selling 10 to 15 copies a day within a few months, it was selling over a hundred copies a day. Then it was in the multiple hundreds. And then it sold at, um, I guess at 65,000 copies, you start to get the attention of the big five publishers. And so I started getting calls from, uh, the first call was from HarperCollins, and then I got a call from Penguin Random House. And I ended up going to auction for that, uh, for for the book. And um, traditionally publishing, getting a lot of media, Good Morning America, Nightline, all sorts of stuff in that realm. And and that's kind of how it how it happened. And as a result of that, I, I actually had someone who said, you know, I really want to teach this methodology in my psychology practice. He's British. He works for the NHS. And I was like, huh. He's like, can we work on, you know, a certification? And so we ended up creating a certification. There's a Snake of Mind Institute now that actually certifies coaches. Um, but all of that just came from, I mean, really just putting it out in the world. So when you put it out in the world, was it basically just altruism? Like, I think somebody will benefit from my experience. Yeah. I, I, I mean, just to be really transparent with you, I had a really good job. I had no intention of leaving my really good job. I liked what I was doing. Um, I was so equally thankful though. I was so thankful. I literally was feeling like I was on a train that was going off a bridge and I was able to get off it before I went off the bridge. And, and the wounds that I had were things like my son telling me my teeth were purple or spilling beer all over my kids in public one day. And like, I mean, they were such minor wounds and I, I just, I, I could so clearly see the cost of, of where I was going. I mean, I was going into total destruction. And so the, the level of gratitude that I had, that I was able to get off that train, um, fueled the whole thing. Uh, just other people need this. There's, there's people who need that. Like, that's it. It's like still my fuel, you know, and, and it really does go, I mean, the, the get me emotional actually got a letter right before this. And it was a letter from a girl and she's like, my dad is celebrating one year. No, oh, I'm going to cry if I talk about it. My dad is celebrating one year sober with your book. And, um, would you write him a letter so that I can give him cause we're having a party for him. And I was like, I'll do better than that. I'll make him a video, you know? And like, like, I don't know the kids, like if, if it's a kid who's got their parent back, like for me, like that's, that's everything. I mean, I, I gave my kids their mom back and I don't know. That's, that's it. That's the why. Well, it's always better when people cry on dopey. So I appreciate you getting emotional. <laughs> that's great. Um, and, um, you know, things born from altruism are, are often really amazing things. So like, that's, I love that story. I have a couple more questions. I'm going to let you go, but I have a couple more questions. Okay. Um, sure. when you go, I've been to detox a million times, like more times than I can count. 
Um, and when you go to detox, one thing they say right off the bat is like to the heroin addict in detox, they say, oh, you're not going to die. Don't worry. The only people that can die in detox are the people kicking benzos and the people kicking alcohol. And um, you didn't have bad withdrawal, bad, you didn't have DTs or whatever when you came off of it, right? Right. And um, how do you think this naked mind, like I, I, I can see a world of people who it is perfect for, you know, Kira, you know, who, who told me about you and my friend Nat, who has a pod, my friend Nat has a podcast about recovery. He did three episodes about you, three episodes about this naked mind. It's called recovery in the middle ages. If you ever want to look into it, that's me giving Nat a free plug, but three episodes about you. That's a big deal. Anyway, how do we think this naked mind can help the total fuck up alcoholic in the street who doesn't mind calling themselves an alcoholic. Can, can we, can, can it work for them if they can just put down the bottle long enough not to be totally wasted when they're drinking? I mean, when so, they're reading, well, I'm sorry. First, when they're first reading. part of that is just let's address the danger because it is dangerous and it can be really dangerous. And so like do everything in my power and all my groups, you know, all the Facebook groups, beginning of the book, the website, like there's so many disclaimers is if you, if you think at all, if you can't go a day without drinking, you need to only do this in conjunction with some medical supervision or medical medically assisted detox. Cause it's just like, let's not mess with that. There's no, no good reason. Um, and it's terrifying, but I do think that addiction is two component parts and one is the physical and one is the mental. And this naked mind does nothing for the physical. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. It's a book <laughs> It's paper, right? It's not going to help you with a physical detox. And that's why it's so important that people understand that from the, from the beginning, but the physical detox is not going to last without a mental mindset shift. And so I think that's, what's really powerful about this naked mind is people can detox all the time. I mean, you said you were in detox yourselves. Like it's not until you have like the mental wherewithal because the physical thing Drugs, alcohol, they're out of our body, you know, I mean, they're out of our body probably within like 72 hours, I think is is what I've most recently read for alcohol, but then your brain really readjusts within 14 to 30 days. So you should feel pretty physically normal in about 14 to 30 days. However, if you still retain a belief that alcohol is the end all be all, it is the reason that you're married. It's the reason that you're good at your job. It's the reason you're present with your kids. It's the reason that you're successful in your life. It's the reason you can relax. It's the reason you can have fun. You got no chance of maintaining that. I don't care about the physical aspect. And so we have to understand that there's these two component parts and neither one can be, you know, uh, like we have to talk about both. And that's that underlying subconscious reality in somebody that they're married to this belief, this self-deception when it's the opposite. That, that's, you know, that's very, very, very amazing. Um, and then in AA, they talk about a spiritual component, which is not a part of this naked mind. Why did, it, why did the spiritual component not enter the, the picture? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that there is a spiritual component in everything, but I also really felt on my heart that this needed to be science-based because, you know, it, again, like one of, I would say if I have, you know, if I was going to give it some thought and really distill down what I want to do um, into two, com- two pieces, it would be to lower the barrier to entry into the conversation and um, help to remove, like help to awaken self-compassion. Uh, 
and and so lowering the barrier to to enter into the conversation as soon as you throw in your beliefs you've you alienate people right right. so whatever i believe spiritually is not what you believe spiritually and i mean even if it is it's not what larry over there or sue over there believes so as soon as you've you've made that a central aspect you have you've in effect closed the door to people and and i didn't want to do that right you alienate a huge percentage of of potential people who are going to benefit that's very smart too now the last thing is the most important thing, okay? Now, I uh, we started Dopey, you know, not to help anybody, we and not and not for any reason other than to have a laugh. You know what I mean? And then Dopey wound up helping people, and it's like that's crazy. I've never cried over an email, but I probably could. You know what I mean? Like I hear beautiful messages from from the audience, and um, and one message I got from one woman was she's you know she's a heroin addict who's now on Spoxin and she smokes weed but her life is getting better and she was talking about how dopey helps her and she described dopey as being the vanguard or at the vanguard of the alt recovery movement and i was like oh, that sounds really good and i was like how do i get rich off the alt recovery movement so like we're we're starting a movement called the alt recovery movement which basically says there are a million entry points into addiction and there should be a million exit points from addiction meaning if you feel fucked up over 12 steps you don't have to do 12 steps if you don't like annie grace's book you can windsurf if you don't like windsurfing you can take up the dharma shit or whatever now you are a master marketer would you like to be part of the alt recovery movement in name and two how do we make it big what do we do Oh, that's so good. Well, I think we keep lowering the barrier to entry into the conversation. I mean, that I think is the thing that we do. And I think that's happening all the time. Um, I do my best to like do as much mainstream media as possible. And it's just about uh, saying, you know, reframing the conversation. The conversation right now has been what do I have a problem? Am I an alcoholic? Am I a drug addict? What's my problem? And I think the conversation really can be like, would life be a bit better if I wasn't doing drugs or alcohol? Like, would I be happier? Because that conversation, like our brains are literally like Google. So you ask the brain a question. I say, you know, what color shirt am I wearing? And your brain answers immediately. Any question you ask your brain, it's going to give you an answer. So if you're always asking what's wrong with me, what's my problem, it's going to give you an answer. But if you start asking, like, could life be better without drinking as much? And that becomes the default question in this recovery movement, which I really like that term, um, then that becomes such a lower barrier to entry into the conversation. So I think it's about just removing, I would love to see a world where my kids can drink or not drink. And it's about as loaded as them, you know, deciding to eat a donut or not eat a donut, which means it's pretty much not a very loaded conversation. Whereas right now still going out and being the non-drinker in the room, it's loaded. You know, people are like, why? What's wrong? What happened to you? And, um, you know, you have to either go on your story or give them the cold shoulder. And it's, it's still a thing. And, and I think the more we can have the conversation be for anyone and it be like my view would be let's make this a wellness conversation to the extent we can. And then out of the back of that, yes, of course, we're going to help the people who are massively addicted and really in trouble like I was. But I think remember how I got the train before it crashed? 
I could have got off the train sooner. I'm convinced of that. If I would have been able or willing to ask myself these much more soft questions sooner. I, I stumbled out of the wreckage of the train. The train totally crashed for me. And I like dragged myself out of the fucking engineer car, like dragging myself on the ground, which a lot of people, I mean, if you can survive the train you crash, survived. you know, ex- awesome. exactly. Um, and that's another thing when you talk about, am I drinking? Am I not drinking like a donut? That's like a lot of in your book, it was talking about all these quote unquote naughty things that the people we looked up to were doing and what were they getting out of it, right? It's like that that created its own conversation. It's just interesting the way, you know, because I'm scared. Like like last night um, I was with, uh, we were at St. Patrick's Day at my in-laws and, and everyone, my, my mother-in-law doesn't really drink, my father-in-law has dementia and he stopped drinking. My wife drinks, but not alcoholically. But my daughter kind of mentioned something about wanting to try the wine, you know? And I was just like, oh, you know what I mean? Like I'm sitting in the other room hearing her say, I want to try the wine. And it freaks me out. And, and like, because, you know, genetics are a concern, like just similar minds, like, and, and so how much of it being a loaded you know, societal situation, does it affect, you think, children and their choices? Like, how much of that is, is something to be concerned about? Is that a good question, think, or is that terribly I think we should all be very, very, very concerned about that, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, it, we, we have this idea that we can just tell our kids what to do and not, not have to live out what we intend for them, and that's just false. Children do what we do. And so if we're drinking, they're going to drink. And I can't tell you how many hundreds of people I've had this conversation with once they're out of the so-called pitcher plant and they're saying, man, now I'm watching my kids fall into it. And I, they're just they're just walking the path that I did. I was the one who showed them that alcohol was the key to that every day when you got home from work, you poured a drink. I, I was the one who modeled that. And I'd say, but drink responsibly, but you don't, you know, don't do as I do, do as I say. And that's just... That's just false. I mean, that's just bullshit. So, um, so yes, there's, I, I think, I think it's right to be concerned. I'm actually working on a book right now. That's going to be a picture book, but for teenagers. So it's going to be like full on like kids style picture book with pictures, with storyboard. And it's going to be like the top five things I wish I would have known about drinking before I ever drink a, a drop. And, um, it's going to be all science-based, just very factual about what it does in the brain and what it does in the body. And, um, yeah, I'm hopeful for that, but I think it is a, a big deal. It starts with us. If we want our kids to be different, we have to be different. Totally. And then and then the most frustrating thing that I find around all this talk is that there's still nothing we can do for the person suffering, you know, except be there. You know what I mean? Because you can give them a book, they can read it, but they're just not done. There's no way to take somebody who's either an alcoholic, a drug addict, or somebody who loves drinking, somebody who doesn't see the truth to make them see it or, or to show them the consequences they need to experience it themselves, which is the crazy magic of this whole thing. So that's, that's, yeah, no, nobody takes advice. They don't ask for, they just don't, but what we can do and what I find a lot of hope with, because you know, it gets depressing when we start to think that we don't have power here is I do believe, and I've seen this in my own life, you know, just showing up and happily, easily, effortlessly not drinking and having fun and laughing a lot. It 
and never even saying a word about it. The, the ripple effect of that, it, it cannot be understated. I mean, that's why I love your podcast, actually, is because you brought humor to something and you're showing up and having fun and saying, hey, we're just going to have a good time. And, um, and it's like that, that by itself, you know, again, do what I do, don't do what I say. It's like we're leading by example in that. Like, just be you without drugs or alcohol in a really authentic way without, by the way, hiding, you know, let's not hide. Let's be at the bar. <laughs> if you can do it, if you're not going to be tempted, let's be at the bar with our iced tea, laughing our asses off. And you know, that, that speaks volumes. See, I, I, I can't do it cause I can't handle, I mean, it's not, I can't handle being around drunk people, not because I'm not drunk, but because they annoy the shit out of me. It's like, yeah. it's <laughs> like, I got to get out of there. You know what I mean? It's like, but I, I get your point, and um, and I really appreciate your time. I think this has been really interesting. Uh, you're the first person like you that's been on the show, so that's interesting in itself. So that's an honor for you. Congratulations! That's awesome. And thank um, you. and thank you so much for your time. And uh, you can help me market the alt recovery movement because we're gonna we're gonna dovetail you guys into it from this naked Sounds mind great. and Annie Grace into the alt recovery movement. So. Look Look for us changing the world together, Annie. Grace. Awesome. Okay. Sounds so good, Dave. Right on. Thank you so much for your time. So that was Annie Grace, and uh, it took me forever to get her. But before we talk about Annie Grace, we have a guest on the show, a great friend of the show, member of the Dopey Nation, pioneering contributor to all things Dopey, street team promotions, has his own <laughs> podcast called The Movie Seller, has another podcast called The Experts, which is kind of on hiatus at the moment. He is a jack of all trades. He dwells in a cellar-type basement full of VHS tapes, posters, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle stuff. It's Dan Allen Sr. Don't call him Ali Sr., although he may or may not be Muslim. Welcome to the show. Hey man, thanks for having me on the show. This is amazing. This is a dream come true, Dave. Wow, that's that's the ultimate. Keep the bar set low, and you will never be disappointed. <laughs> situation. This is great. I mean, last time Ray was on the show, he said he doesn't care. So you saying this is a dream come true is like it's great for me. How are you, dude? I told you. I told you on Twitter. It was like I don't know, maybe six months ago on Twitter. Someone was like who would be your dream guest for your show? And I was like, I'd love to have Dave from Dopey on my show. It'd be the greatest thing ever. So the fact that I'm on Dopey is like, I just, I'm starstruck, man. Oh, stop it. Don't, don't, don't embarrass me or yourself in this, in this way. But I, I listen, I'm a huge Dan Allen senior fan who used to be called Dan Ali senior. Why don't you break that down for anybody in the Dopey nation who might be confused about your identity? Uh, well, I mean, how, how much do you want me to get into it? Basically, very little, um, very little. I, I think when, uh, when Trump took office in 2016, he said he was going to put together a list of Muslims. And I was like, how the hell is this guy going to make a list of Muslims? He'll just go by their name. So I changed my last name to show like, you know, solidarity with the, with the Muslim community. So, so with, I could get on the list with whatever Ali's that were Muslim, you were now yeah. among them. So you were on the list. It worked for Muhammad Ali, right? I think it's great. I, I always just assumed you were Muslim, so I always I always loved that. And and you are an alcoholic in recovery, correct? Yeah, yeah, almost three years, man. Beautiful, amazing. And you have your own little uh, podcasting empire. <laughs> 
I mean, I have the movie seller, and then um, I actually we're gonna in in June after after our big event in June we're gonna launch we're calling it the movie seller junk drawer, which is gonna be uh, the the experts is gonna go in there, and we're gonna have a few other shows that are like maybe monthly or just like one off type just junk drawer, man. I assume you have a junk drawer in your house. It's just gonna be full of random shit. My whole house is a junk drawer. <laughs> the, the the whole you should see what I'm looking at. It's just oh my god, it's it's bad. Here, look. You ready? You ready for the junk drawer of our? I mean, yeah. Dan lives like his where he's on the phone with me right now. It's like the the nerd bat cave kind of thing. Posters, comic book figures, comic books, like weird thermoses and stuff. I live in hell. You ready for this, Dan? Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. Oh, it's an attic, man. <laughs> it's bad. It's very bad. Um, now, I, I thought you would be, I mean, Dan is doing this amazing thing around the Juvenile Diabetes Foundation. Is that what it's called? Good. Yeah, the JDRF, the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. And But before we get, and that, that, that's the occasion for, for Dan. Dan's been on Patreon a bunch of times. Dan is one of my friends from the Dopey Nation who I've gotten to know since Dopey Day, which has been a joy for me. And um, I always check in with Dan, see what's going on, see what he thinks. He's way better at Twitter than me, so I always want his input on how to promote on Twitter. But um, <laughs> I figured he would be a good match for the Annie Grace segment because Dan got sober without the use of a 12-step. Correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I did... Um... And I think she mentioned this in the interview, too. Like, I did, like, hit a few meetings... Um, and I read the big book, um, but yeah, I didn't, uh, I would, that was the extent of my experience. Not like, like you guys. So how did it work when you got sober? Like you didn't, you didn't join Alcoholics Anonymous. You didn't join any 12 step fellowship. You didn't do any of those programs. What did you do? Like, how did you put three years together? What was your tactic? I mean, okay. So basically like, it's hard to get into without getting into the whole story, but like, I, I guess I feel like I utilize a lot of the, the concepts of 12 step. Um, I just, and you're going to like, this is, you say this all the time on the show and it like kills me every time, but like the God thing, um, for me, the God thing is a real sticking point. And it's not because like, I don't want to like submit to a God or anything weird like that. It's just, it really, it really boils down to like, I start, my alcoholism got really, really bad when I stopped believing in God. Um, and, um, and then, and then I got into, and then I started to like get sober and I was like, oh shit, I could like get God back. And then I realized like, oh, I don't really still don't believe in God. I'm just hoping to like get something back. Basically I got really afraid when I stopped believing in God because it was my whole identity. Cause like I was going to be a pastor and I was studying theology and all this shit. And then when it was gone, I was like left really confused and really scared. And so when I got into recovery and I was like, Oh, I could have all that back. Then I suddenly realized like, I don't actually believe this. It's just, I want my crutch back. And so I knew that, like, that wasn't really the path forward for me. So the sticking point was that you had a, a spiritual background. You had a religious background. And then, yeah. and then it all kind of turned in on itself. I had no religion. I had no—I mean, my God is just—my God is just to make sure that it's not me. 
My God is just to make sure that the universe out there functions perfectly without having anything to do with me. I think it's your background that makes it so difficult. You know what I mean? Because the God, the God that you were supposed to believe in was very specific, right? Yeah. It was not the God of your understanding. It was God. Right. And like, I couldn't, so like the way that I, the way that I was a Christian was like incredibly, like I was very, very logical and like, not logical because Christianity is fucking bonkers. But like my theology within itself was very structured and very organized. And like, it all had to make sense and like connect together for me. Um, and so the idea of this, like sort of like nebulous concept of like a God of my, like, I can't do that shit. Like, that's just not in my brain. Like that is not the kind of person I am. Like it has to be concrete. It has to really feel like I believe it or it's worthless to me. But I think the most important thing is that you didn't need it. You didn't have to do it. Like, like I use my spirituality is a tool more than anything else. Right. It's strictly a tool to keep me sane and as happy and free as possible. It's not like a, it's not a devotion. You know what I mean? It's right. a, it, right. it, it's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a practice to keep me from going fucking insane. Yeah, dude. And I don't begrudge anybody that like, there's a ton of people like who reach out to me and are like, you know, what should I do? And I'm like, you should go to a 12 step meeting and I will go with you. Like it's the easiest and like most clearly laid out path out there. And uh, like my, my beginning of the journey on that path was really important because it helped me realize like all this shit I had going on in my head with like God and Christianity and like how I had to work through all that. So, well, my favorite thing about it is that you're an example of uh, alt recovery working. You know what I mean? It's like if it if it's like if it ain't broke, you don't fix it. And I think the reason that twelve step doesn't work for I mean, I think only like five or ten percent uh is the success rate with uh twelve step recovery. But I think that's because those are the only the five or the ten percent that succeed actually can do it. And everybody else is like, I don't want to do it. You know what I mean? Like and I get yeah. that, you know, but so like I think to find a path that works and follow it. You know, like you're, you're, you're thriving three years in six kids, lots of VHS tapes, right? It's like, what do you have to, it's pretty good. Your deal is pretty good. I mean, the, the VHS tapes are actually a part of it. I mean, I, the podcast and all that shit, that was like, definitely like from a practical standpoint, having distractions early on is like really, really helpful. And so I got really, I got really into collecting tapes and then really into doing the podcast. So that was definitely a part of it. Oh, it's, it's like, I I don't really talk about how much doing this podcast helped in my recovery, but I knew that being distracted was everything. I knew that thinking about something else was the number one thing. And if it's, if it's dopey or if it's collecting videotapes or if it's Taekwondo or if it's fishing or if it's God, who cares? As long as it's not you and alcohol or heroin or weed or whatever the thing is. It's the great distraction. So um, how did you come to Dopey again? What was, the, what was the thing that brought you to Dopey? I mean, I was only like a couple months into my sobriety, uh, maybe a month. And like I was, I've always been into podcasts. So like the, one of the first things I do when I'm, I have a new interest is like try to find podcasts about it. 
Um, so I was looking up podcasts about sobriety and I ended up uh, finding this sober guy or that sober guy or whatever the fuck his name is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shane. Shane something or other. Right? His name is yeah, Shane, the sober uh, guy. Uh, yeah. So that guy, he, in his like, in his like iTunes thing, it said other podcasts like this and you guys were in there. And then I listened and the first episode I heard was Chris telling that fucking crazy story about going to, uh, the baseball game and the complete disaster that that was after the fact. And I was like, these are my people. Like, this is my show. Like, this is the shit right here. And I think, I don't know if it was the same episode, but, like, around then, like, you guys would, like, the doorbell would ring and have, like, Chinese delivered and shit. And I was like, I love this. It's like I'm hanging out with a couple of dudes, like, just shooting the shit about nonsense. Like, I fucking love that. And how long after that did you start uh, the movie seller? It was actually... I don't know. It was a while after that. Um, it was probably a year. Um, cause like, you know, one of the things they tell you in AA or 12 step, I don't, I don't know the rules, but what, what I'm allowed to call it, but, um, <laughs> you can call it anything. Um, but whatever it is, uh, one of the rules they tell you is like, not to, not to like start new things or like not to make too many changes that first year. So like, I did, I try not to like start anything big except for we did have a kid, which is a pretty big thing. But after five, we had already, it didn't seem like a big deal to have one more. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, but yeah, so it was about a year after I started this show. And, and would you say the amateurishness of dopey was a great inspiration to the amateurish of the movie seller? Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I like, I, there's something very endearing about uh, those early episodes. And I think you hear that all the time in, in your reviews. Like there's definitely something endearing about like the, the fish tank bubbling in the background and like the terrible, like you literally would call people on the spot on the show and like wait for them to answer. And then the phone would ring. Like those, that was great. Yeah. Those are, that was, but it also like, I think the naivete worked when it did, you know what I mean? Like I think it, 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 yeah. it worked exactly the way it was supposed to, but um, what about Annie Grace? What do you think about Annie Grace? We didn't talk about Annie Grace. Yeah, well, it's funny because you sent me that um, to listen to, and um, I didn't really realize at the time what it was, and then I looked her up, and I was like, oh, shit, this is uh, what this Naked Mind or whatever. Um, and I was like, I have heard a lot of like people talk shit about this book because um, – like I'm a part of, like I'm an admin in a couple different um, Facebook groups for like alcohol sobriety, um, and I've heard in like both of them, people be like, "Stay away from this book. It is dangerous." Um, and I had never really read it, but um, I, I found it interesting that they were so afraid of it. Um, Why do you think they were so afraid of it? I think because like. Uh, the, it's hard to say without reading it myself, um, but based on what she said in the interview and what those people said, it's like they're afraid that she doesn't take alcoholism seriously enough. That like to this idea that like you can just sort of like think your way through it and out of it, that um, that's not like – I don't know. Like she said in the interview, which I thought was great, that like somehow that makes you – if it works for you, you're not a real alcoholic. Like it wouldn't work for a real alcoholic. And I'm like, I don't know. 
that's weird. Did but, she say that in the interview that if if her book works, then you're not really a real alcoholic? She said like that people have told her she's not a real alcoholic, and I thought that was actually my favorite part of the interview was when she's like, "Well, what about all the people out there that are not labeled as like real alcoholics? Like maybe, but they have a problem with alcohol." Like this, maybe this isn't for the quote unquote real alcoholic, but there's like millions of people who are fucked up with alcohol that this would be great for. Well, the big, the big book like diagnose, like denotes those people as heavy drinkers or something. And it's like, yeah, this book is a great tool for them. I think that's interesting in itself because like it isn't about what she's talking about. Isn't about a spiritual malady. It isn't about like, your life is fucked. It's about drinking doesn't do what you might think it does. It's a whole other thing, you know? Um, but I know there were a bunch of people in the dopey nation who love this book and love this woman and Kira, who is always like helping me out with this or that around dopey, like got sober because of the book. And, um, that's basically why this woman came on the show. So I think that's a big deal. You know what I mean? The fact that Anybody can can come into contact with something and it has this profound effect on their life, then that fits into this alt recovery thing too. Do you think this alt recovery thing is a whole sham or do you like it? Or both? No. No, I mean I honestly, dude, what I think is I think it's fucking brilliant. I love that every time you have a guest on, it used to be the cookie that you would like try to pitch to every guest, but now it's alt recovery, which I think is something that you should be less sticky about because I think that it's like fucking legit. I'm working on a book. We're going to come out with uh, the alt. I think like the alt recovery movement, I, it's hard for me not to be sticky about it. You know, it just, <laughs> I, I, and the, the truth is right to, to be totally a hundred percent honest. I believe in the alt recovery movement as much as I believe in the cookie. And like, <laughs> but that's not to say that I don't believe in the cookie. I believe in the cookie. I believe the cookie is the thing that will get us out of this house into the, the next house. And, and I believe the alt-recovery movement is real. And I think it has to be sticky, though, because that's what makes it fun. You know what I mean? The fun yeah. is that there's, it should be obvious that there's an infinite number of paths into recovery. Like, that shouldn't be something that's we're just inventing. You know, it should be like, everybody should accept that. It's like, it, it's like you proclaiming you're Muslim because Donald Trump wants to put Muslims on the list. It's like every door should be open to a better life. That's the point of the alt-recovery movement. It's just fun to yeah. be sticky about stuff like that. It's fun to be like, but wait, there's more. You can make an omelet on the alt-recovery movement in three minutes. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean. But more importantly... More importantly than all that stuff is that you have a daughter who has juvenile diabetes, and it breaks my heart. And, and the movie seller was the movie seller in its inception a, a way to, to bring attention to it, or do you just realize those things work together? Yeah, no. I mean, we started the movie seller just, like, to, just for fun, just to hang out with my friends. Um, and it wasn't until um, – so my daughter, um, she's 12 now. She was 10 at the time. She was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. It was, um, it was like two years ago, like yesterday. Um, so it – which was like a month before we started the podcast. So you would have thought that I would have planned this all out much better. But, um, 
But yeah, so we started the podcast and then it wasn't until that summer that like she was going hardcore at fundraising for the, for the JDRF. And I was like, man, she's really showing me up. This like 10 year old kid who just got a life changing diagnosis is like out here, like slinging lemonade for the JDRF. Like I got to figure out something that I can do. And um, that's when we started, I was like, you know, you know how it is. Like you're, I'm a busy man. Like you're a busy guy there's not a whole lot of time in the day to add new things. So I started thinking, how can I do take something I already do and like use it to raise money? So how did it work? Um, so the initial, like the, the way that we have historically done it is um, we, we have what we call VHS for T1D. Um, and that is if you donate $20 or more um, to the JDRF through our campaign, um, then you get to pick a movie for us to watch and review. Um, it was actually a member of the Dopey Nation who was the first person to, to donate to this. Who was it? It was Julie. That's all right, Julie. <laughs> yes. Dude, she dude. Had us watch, uh, fuck, it was some, oh, now, man, I feel like an asshole now. It was uh, some 80s movie. Oh, The Big Chill. That's a good movie. It was good. That's a good, really good movie. That's That's a movie, right? Check it out. One of my big dreams in my life, besides the alt-recovery movement and besides the Othello cookie, one of my biggest dreams is to write a movie that rips off The Big Chill. Because The Big Chill does this thing, is it, it, it bottles nostalgia. It's, it's friends, and you're hanging out with them, and the music, and it's like, I want to write a movie that's a rip-off of The Big Chill. I've been talking about this since before I got sober. This well, is, there you go. It's man. one of my dreams. So if I'm I'm donating, I'm donating to this cause. Do I get to pick a movie? Well, no, <laughs> no. not right now. <laughs> I have my movie. Do you want to know the movie I want you guys to do? Yes. Uh, Ralph Macchio's Crossroads. Oh, nice. Have you ever seen we it? We just did a Macchio movie. Which one? Uh, we, uh, well, it won't have, oh yeah, it did air, uh, the outsiders. Ah, see, we could have had Danny boy O'Connor on that thing. I know. Well, I didn't even realize that, uh, that Danny boy O'Connor owned that house until Wick actually saw that we had done that episode and he was like, yo, Danny boy O'Connor like owns that house. He just like, he, he, yeah, it's a museum and he's like, it was funny when, uh, when Danny Boy came on Dopey the first time and he was telling me and Chris about this Outsiders Museum, Chris didn't know what the Outsiders was. And he, <laughs> he was acting like he knew what it was, but he had no idea what it was. It was really, really funny. Um, <laughs> but uh, I can't believe So he said that he talked about that on the show. He talked about it on the show twice. Uh, I can't believe I fucking didn't remember that. That's that's bad, man. I'm a bad fan. Usually you remember more stuff than I do, so I'm just surprised that that happened. Um, but you did you ever see Ralph Macchio in Crossroads? No, I've not seen that. Oh, dude. I, I, I want to... I need you guys to do Crossroads, but you guys do it as the alphabet, right? So you're, gonna, you're going through the whole alphabet. Well, no, not... So for VHS for T1D, those are not alphabetical. So we do the alphabetical episodes every other week. Those are like our main episodes. Uh, because if you think about it, there's there's 26 letters in the alphabet that do through a year. A year is a season. Um, Very clever. 
What's that? I said that's very clever. Yeah, <laughs> it just happened that way. It was just it just happened. But anyway, um, so the VHS for T1D they can be. They can be anything. They don't even have to be like VHS era. They can be more recent than that. It doesn't matter. Now, wait. You said that your biggest dream was to have me on your stupid show. And I told you I would go on your stupid show whenever you wanted. And you never asked me to go on your stupid show. (laughs) It's like, dude, do you ever have like a big guest that you're like really anxious about having on the show to the point where you're just like, I don't like it's just too much. No, no, no. But that's not how I am. I run, I run towards danger. I run to yeah. the fire. Um, well. No, I get anxious. I get anxious about every guest. I get anxious yeah. about every guest. I can't. I can't. I mean, like, I can't think of a guest that I was. I mean, Artie, Mark Marin. I was, I, but I ran to it because I knew that I would regret it too much if I didn't. You know, like that. That bothered me. The idea of not doing it. Um, so what do they, what can the dopey nation do for this, uh, for the, the type one diabetes research? Okay. So, so let me like, uh, so I, I don't want to like take forever, but we did, we've been doing VHS for T1D, but then you actually ha- held DopeyCon too. Um, and I watched that and I was like, I had these like bells go off in my head. I was like, holy shit, we could do this, but like make people pay for it. And then instead of having to do 20 bucks a pop every other week, like we could get a whole shitload of money in one shot. Um, And so we put together what we're calling uh, the Trilogy of Trash Birthday Bash, which is going to be dropping on May 7th. Amazing. The Trilogy of Trash Birthday Bash. And what can people look for in this show? Okay, so the deal is that we have these friends that uh, run this like – independent like movie making operation they um they call themselves dungeon entertainment and they made a trilogy of like shot on video horror films shot on video just means they're like shot with hand cameras and like literally like tape you know like actual vhs tape recordings um so they have that real grainy look so trilogy of those shot on video films they call them the trilogy of trash they have never released these on youtube or anywhere on the internet so if you've ever seen them, it's because you bought the VHS tapes. So we're going to be showing them. Um, we're going to be premiering them essentially on YouTube and interspersed between each of them. Cause they're like 15 minutes each. Um, we'll have like little video clips of our different sponsors and like different people with type one diabetes. And uh, there's like intros to each movie by the Dungeon Entertainment guys talking a little bit about making it. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I think it sounds great. And what can the Dopey Nation do to help? Well, if you donate five dollars to the campaign, you get a ticket to the event. You get a link to the event. How do they do it? Um, How do they buy the ticket? You go to so I I use my uh, smart my smart brains and uh, came up with a, a link forwarding. So if you do trashbash.themovieseller.com. That's very hard to, to, to get them to remember. I'll put it, I'll post it. Trashbag.themovieseller.com. Yes. It's way easier than, okay, so what that does is it redirects you to our JDRF campaign. So, like, all your donations go directly to the JDRF, which is, like, a really big deal to us, that we don't ever touch the money. Um, so they all go directly to, to the JDRF, but, like, what... 
uh, this URL is way easier than our JDRF URL because that's like 36 random characters. Right, 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 right. I get it. Um, So what and, and how is your daughter doing with it? Um, you know, she, so today, actually, when we get off this call, we are going over to the, um, pediatric diabetes center and she is getting her, um, pump installed. So she has, so it's this like super modern, crazy technology that, um, she wears a patch and it pumps insulin into her automatically without her having to take shots. Um, so she's been, they hooked it up to her on uh, Friday of last week, and she's just been doing it with saline for the weekend. Um, and so now we're going to go in, and she's going to actually get this pump set up with insulin. So whenever she's high, it will bring her back down. Whenever she's low, it will suppress insulin. Like it's really, it's pretty, pretty fucking cool, man. Amazing. So that's a good deal. And so Dopey Nation, yeah. we never have causes on the show, so it's nice to support this cause. Um, I, I think uh, I'm gonna. I, I want to pick a movie. I want to. I want to do all that shit. I'm gonna donate yeah. to the thing. We're gonna. I didn't send you the hat. I'm gonna send you the hat today. Right. Um, they're doing an auction. Tell them about the auction. Yeah. Okay. So the other piece of this is like, because people fucking love tears. Like that's one thing that I have learned. Not tears like crying. Although people on Dopey love love crying. I don't <laughs> think they like tears on Dopey. I don't think the tears. I don't think people really like. Anyway, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Anyway, so we set up tiers. So we have the $5 gets you in. $10 gets you what we're calling a swag pack, which will have stickers. Hopefully some from Dopey if Dave fucking sends them to me. Um, I'll send you some. And a, few, and, a, and a bunch of other shows. And also we've got two artists who have made us um, custom prints that we haven't, like, displayed anywhere online. And we're going to make mini prints of those and throw those in. So that's for $10. Um, and then and – then, for 20 bucks, you get all that and a signed DVD of the Trilogy of Trash. And then every donation gets you in, entered into the raffle. And the raffle's full of, like, really cool shit. Um, we have signed prints from Ninja Turtles comic artists. Um, we have Dave a Hat from Dopey, again, if I get it. <laughs> Maybe I'll try to find something special to throw in. But I don't, I don't, yeah. really, I don't have too much special stuff anymore. But I actually, I, I can, you know, what I can throw in is there's a woman who goes to my home group and she made uh, these very cool Dopey Nation uh, COVID masks. I'll throw in one yeah. of those too. They're really cool. That's awesome. And then we're gonna, there's a, there's a comic in there from these, uh, from some friends of mine who just launched the, the their, their book. It's called Space Oddities. So that's dropping in April, and they're gonna send me a copy of that. That'll be signed in there. Um, I have, well, fuck, man, there's just so much stuff in there. Oh, Trev, uh, from the struggling artist, he put together a mixtape. Um, and it's like all stuff that's been approved by the artist. So it's like fucking legit, man. Um, that's in there. Awesome. Um, so yeah, a bunch of cool shit. Well, I think it sounds great. Uh, I'm happy to participate. We will post, we'll tweet shit and post shit. You know, dopey nation will be apprised up uh, of all this stuff. One more time. Give the URL. Trashbash.themovieseller.com. And that's going to come out first week in May, is the Trash Bash. Yeah, May 7th at 8 p.m. Is All the right. Plan. So, uh, awesome. Very exciting. Now we have dopey business to, to, to. Now, as an alcoholic, do you ever feel like, like, 
dis, dis what is the word I'm looking for? Disenfranchised from all the drugs and shit. On the show? Yeah. No, because like a lot of the stories are the same. I mean, sometimes when people get into like, I mean, listen, man, I never like did what I loved about Annie's inter- the Annie Grace interview is like I really relate. Like I didn't do a lot of the crazy shit. Like, but at the end of the day, we're all trying to escape. It's all the same thing. Totally, totally. And um, what was the other thing I was going to ask you? Fuck, hold on. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, that's all right. I wanted to ask you a question. Can I ask you a question? Please. How was my pitch? Because I like I've been I have to do this pitch a few times. Too much. We don't need to know about that fucking the last shit you were talking about the the space the oddity. Apple? Nobody needs to know about the space oddities. We could we could lose that. We can we can we can remove Trev from this. We can remove Trev. I like the mixtape, but. I, I don't know. I, I think I Dude, think the pitch. The only thing that matters is the dopey stuff. Just tell them about what's dopey in there, and you're good. No, 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 no. I think the the, the mutant ninja turtles. I think your obsession with the teenage mutant ninja turtles is odd. I remember. I'm much older than you are, but I remember when I was 11 or something, 10, 11, 12, and the original uh, Eastman and Laird Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comic came out, and. Uh, yeah. And I, my friend Jeremy's been on the show a bunch of times. He told the story of smoking a joint on a plane. He lived with me and Todd in California. He bought all the original Eastman and Laird teenage men, you know, the black and white comics, you know? Yeah, and, uh, and he knew they were going to be something, you know? And they yeah. were... And then the coolest thing about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, to me, is the connection between the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Daredevil. And that the yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle origin happened because the truck with the radioactive waste that turned Matt Murdock into Daredevil went down the sewer and affected the turtles. Now, right. don't you think that it's a mistake that they never did anything together, that that was never really celebrated in the mainstream? I mean, I think that's a mistake on Marvel's part. I'm sure that I'm sure that the Turtles guys would have been all about that. I mean, they've worked, they've done they've crossover stuff with Batman and Transformers. Like, I'm sure that Marvel is the reason that that didn't happen. You know, I've been um, I've been watching Marvel movies all of a sudden. Um, <laughs> the other day, when I got into that beef with that idiot girl on Twitter about her superhero pick, um, I think Thor. Ragnarok was trending on Twitter and I decided I would yeah. go watch it. Um, it was pretty good. It's so good. It's pretty good. And I, I had watched it before, but I didn't really pay attention. I was like, and then I, and then I decided I was going to watch the, um, the infinity, whatever it's called. What is it called? Infinity war. Yes. I watched the infinity yeah. war and now I'm watching Endgame, and I'm really, I'm enjoying it. There are things I don't like about it, but I'm really, it's very relaxing, and I never watch shit like that. Um, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, did you watch what I told you was my favorite Marvel movie? Which one? The, the Dolph Lundgren Punisher from the 80s. No, I never watched that one. I can't. I can't. <laughs> I can't watch that one. My it's favorite. So what, no, my favorite Marvel movie, I think. I don't know. These, Thor Ragnarok might be it. Did you ever read it's X2? Huh? It's X2. That's your favorite. X2 is your favorite. X2 is not good. X2 is not good. X2 is not a good movie. It's does X2 end with Jean Grey killing Cyclops? 
Oh, that's X three, right? That's the that's isn't that the X Men United? I don't I don't know, man. That's, that's the, the one that I don't really like. X two might be and and fucking Dark Phoenix. Dark Phoenix might be the greatest comic book ever made into the worst movie in the history of of man. Uh, and I think they I tried it twice and they fucked up both times. Well, it's like it's like this Justice League business. They just can't get it together. But um, movie I would guess is the second Spider Man with Doctor Octopus. That one was really good. With when when have you seen Have you seen Into the Spider Verse? I love that. I so I I loved it so much that I literally was like crying my eyes out through the movie. It was so emotional to me because I was such a comic book person. Like these people in these movies are like my oldest friends because I read comics like a fucking fiend uh, as a kid. Um, all right, enough of this comic book talk. Uh, read the read the email. We have a dopey email right. that Dan is gonna read. All right, let me pull it up here. I got it ready to go. I did, and then my screen froze. All right, you ready? Yeah, so you know what's really good also, though, before we, we break away, is uh, did you ever see the animated movie uh, The Dark Knight Returns? It's two parts? Yes. That's good. You That's didn't like really it? Good. It's That's really good. It's really good, right? I feel like if they did a Ben Affleck Batman movie, they should really just do The Dark Knight Returns. Yes, I totally agree with you. I mean, that's the one thing. I haven't watched the Snyder Cut yet, but the one thing I'm hoping for is that they, like, Ben Affleck could be a good Batman. They just haven't given him a chance. I don't like the voice he does. Yeah. You know who I would love to see as Batman? Um, Not for The Dark Knight Returns, and now he's too old, but uh, John Hamm from Mad Men. He would be a great Bruce Wayne. But I don't like Ben Affleck's voice he puts on in Batman. You know what I didn't realize until I watched it recently is like the Christian Bale Batman. He in the first movie he's like pretty mellow on the voice, but by the third movie it's like, dude, like calm down. Batman would not talk that cheesy. The right the right Batman voice is the animated Batman series, the noir one. That Batman voice is perfect. He can yeah. be intimidating, but he's still smart. He doesn't sound corny. He's like in the pocket, you know. But yeah, I mean that that's like one of the best iterations of Batman. Period. So. It really is. Yeah. It re- people overlook that. And you know what else was not that good? Um, the Killing Joke, the movie, really paled compared to the comic yeah. book because he yeah, like has sex not. with Barbara. Are you kidding me? Batman <laughs> is having sex with Barbara Gordon. How do they even do that? How do they, they do that? Because, they did it because it's one of those like R-rated animated films, so they're like, we got to put fucking in here. But they shouldn't have Batman fucking Commissioner no. Gordon's daughter. That's ins- I if I if I was Jewish, which I am, it's a shanda. <laughs> it is a a shame that they would do such a thing because in the comic book, Barbara was fucking Dick Grayson. He wouldn't be right? fucking Bruce Wayne. That's insanity. Why doesn't anyone talk about that? In your little nerd world, do they talk about that? No, because nobody cares about that, that movie. Right, because I'm much more of a nerd, it turns out. All right, read, <laughs> read the dopey email. Enough with this nerdy comic book talk. All right, here's the email. All right. Hi, Dave. I'm a relatively new dopey listener, 31 episodes in. I'm also a new, newly sober from booze and weed. Today makes two months totally clean. I'm 31-year-old ER nurse. 
and the product of a dad who drank himself into an early grave. So a normal person would think there's no way she could get to the point where she's a total piece of shit alcoholic. But addiction has no logic, and I am one of the afflicted. I fucking love Dopey. I started listening a few days into my sobriety because I have been to AA, but it just reminded it just reminds me of my dead dad, and I cry the entire time. So y'all are my program for now. Anyway, enough of my sob story. Here's one of my stupid train wreck stories. So I used to travel a lot to visit family by Greyhound bus because we're poor. When I was 16 years old, I was coming from New York down to Nashville, and I met this probably 30-something-year-old guy on the bus who looked like the dirty hippie type. And he started talking to me, probably because I had a stupid peace sign shirt on that said, Drop Bush, Not Bombs. So there we were, making small talk. And then we stop at this rest stop, and he's like, do you want to smoke? So of course I do. And I was young and still relatively lightweight, so I get super fucked up. Then he became like my best friend in my moronic stone teenage brain. So we have this bus changeover in Cincinnati, and we're super stoned and just fucking chatting away, and we miss the fucking bus. And I'm like a teenager alone in this dirty bus station with this weird dude, but I'm high as fuck. And so it's fine. And he's like, well, do you want to walk around? And I'm like, sure. So we start walking around downtown Cincinnati in the middle of the night and the high starts to wear off. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing walking around with this fucking weird guy? And then I get super paranoid but I'm still trying to be cool because I have no clue where I am. And it's like 1 AM. He literally could have murdered me at any point. That's literally all caps, how people get murdered. Anyway, obviously I didn't get murdered, but it was so dumb. Anyway, at some point, I guess I gave him my email address because after I got home, I got like a few weird emails from him. I of course ignored all of them. Ha ha. Or LOL for Chris's sake or lol for Chris's sake. Uh, I literally don't even remember how I managed to get on the next bus. And I definitely did not tell my parents. I walked around a strange city with some weird fucking guy. Um, I read about Chris on a message board a few weeks ago. That fucking sucks. It makes me appreciate the episodes even more though. I love his laugh. Toodles GB. Love that. Um, yeah. I saw her uh, on Reddit, this person, and she was excited that I responded to her email, which is very nice. So I was like, if we don't read this email soon, it'll be a bad thing. But I love that story. That's a classic, like, what the fuck is going on kind of story, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, like, all good, like, you never go on a bus ride and don't end up with a good story. Well, that's that's, that's, that. I used to take the bus to uh, my college uh, to upstate New York. It was a six and a half hour drive and the bus and it would go through Scranton, Pennsylvania. And there were very few stories. The only stories were I would get off the bus and smoke pot and get back on the bus and swear I would never take the bus again. That, that, the smell of the bus. I wrote, I actually wrote a poem on one of those bus rides. The only poem I ever wrote, I wrote on a, a bus ride. But that was the only good thing that ever happened to me on a bus. That's a big thing, man. You you wrote you wrote a poem. You the only poem you've ever written. You wrote on a bus. It was not a good poem. It was not good. It was bad. That's why I never. That's why I didn't try again. Um, but uh, I really do appreciate uh, 
you in general. You do a lot of great shit for the show behind the scenes, and I appreciate your existence within the Dopey Nation. Fucking Dopey Nation Street Team is coming back. Are you ready for that shit? I'm, I'm stoked for it, man. Listen, here's the deal, right? Your show gets like a, a, a thousand times more downloads than mine, and I'm catching up to you on Twitter followers. So you gotta, we got we to gotta boost these Twitter numbers, man. I know. Well, that's your job. So you're failing at your job. <laughs> One other thing that really that I'm super impressed with is uh, just the I, I went on Dopey Zoom yesterday. Uh, I spoke at the Dopey Birds one year anniversary um, and I was terrible. But um, it's so funny, like when you give a qualification and I, I like judge it like it's an episode or it's like a stand up <laughs> or something. Um but uh, you were part of Dopey Zoom, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I was going for pretty regularly for a while there uh, to the afternoon meetings on Wednesdays and Fridays. Um, and I've definitely, like, I've made a point to pop into some of these meetings where it's like they're celebrating somebody's, like, anniversary or something like that, you know? Isn't it just insane? I think that the Dopey Zoom, I don't talk about the Dopey Zoom enough on the show, but I really think that the Dopey Zoom... Um, it's just a very big deal. It just it means that the community has vitality in it, and it shows how much the community gets from each other. And uh, and I think you're a big part of the community. I think you've been slacking, but uh, but I I do appreciate that. And and like like it's obvious that you feel comfortable in the community, and the community feels comfortable with you. And I just I don't know. It means a lot to me. The emails mean a lot to me. Showing up at a dopey Zoom and people being like the show helped me. It's like, it makes me want to cry. It's very beautiful. Um, I just, what I was saying was like, dopey has been a huge part of my recovery. It gave me the language to talk about recovery. Cause I'm not, I don't have people in my, like around me who are in recovery and I don't go to 12 step meetings. And so like everything I know about recovery, I've learned from you on dopey or from the guests or from the dopey nation for better or worse. Like, it's a cornerstone of, of my recovery path. Well, we got to just move it away from dopey and into the alt recovery movement. Um, (laughs) because it's like the alt recovery movement accepts all immigrants, accepts everybody. You know what I mean? And like, yeah, just like you claiming your, your, your Islam faith, that's what the alt recovery movement is about to all the addict pilgrims in the world. So we, (laughs) we take you, but, um, Dan, thank you so much for coming on and 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 uh, reading an email. You read the email, great. I have to say, I stumbled a little bit, but I tried to I tried to put on my Bible reading voice. Very good, very good, <laughs> very good. You could be a pastor in the alt recovery movement. Yeah, I <laughs> alt alt theology. Yeah, the like alt it. theology, the alt theology movement. Um, yes. Would you like to take us out of this thing? Yeah, man. Uh, thanks for having me on and. Uh, Fucking stay strong, Dopey Nation. Toodles for Chris. Thank you, Dan. Awesome. But before we go, I just wanted to uh, thank Dan again for coming on. Check out his podcast where you get your podcast at the Movie Cellar. That's his podcast. Check out Annie Grace's podcast at This Naked Mind. Check out her book, This Naked Mind. Thank you for everybody who makes Dopey. Thank you, Sam and Ray and the Facebook folks and... Cormac on Reddit and um, anybody who wants to be part of the Dopey Street Team just jump in jump in to do some Dopey Street Team work 
And I am incredibly grateful for our little community. And I love that shit. And again, before we go, we have a very, very special version of Good So Bad, which is our friend Nick and punk rock legend Mike Mart pumping out their version of Good So Bad. Nick is a very accomplished musician and designer. He did the, uh, the dopey coins. He did a ton of amazing dopey artwork. Check it out. Stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris.
I'm sure you can relate to the calling your dad part. <laughs> Dude, it's just really good. Like, where did you write? What did you write? That? 